Welcome to Seekers and Scholars, a podcast from the Mary Baker Eddy Library in Boston and online at mbelibrary.org. I'm Jonathan Eder, your host. In a text called No and Yes, published in its final form in 1892, Mary Baker Eddy answered a series of criticisms of her teachings in order to clarify their intent and meaning. She saw this as a necessary response to attacks from certain members of Boston's evangelical community that, in her view, were misrepresenting her ideas as non-Christian. At the end of the piece, she wrote the following, quote, The author's ancestors were among the first settlers of New Hampshire. They reared there the Puritan standard of undefiled religion. As dutiful descendants of Puritans, let us lift their standard higher, rejoicing as Paul did that we are freeborn. Unquote. I'm so happy today to have with us Dr. David Hall to explore the subject of Puritanism. Dr. Hall is the author of The Puritans, a transatlantic history published by Princeton University Press in 2019, and of A Reforming People, Puritanism and the Transformation of Public Life in New England, published by Knopf in 2011. Dr. Hall is Bartlett Professor of New England Church History Emeritus at Harvard Divinity School. Welcome, David. Thanks, Jonathan. I'm looking forward very much to our conversation. May I begin by responding to her uh, very, very interesting comments on her, or reflections on her own uh, ancestry and New England. Mary Becchetti chooses two words that, uh, or three words actually, that are really worth uh, singling out, the Puritan standard of undefiled religion. And uh, just nice that she attaches the adjective Puritan to that because the, the entire Puritan movement, which goes back to the 16th century in England and Scotland, was a movement directed at recovering the purity of the earliest forms of Christianity. Their understanding of church history was that uh, lots of corruption had crept in. Their word for corruption was human inventions. And the task of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, of which they were part, was to strip away all those inventions and restore purity, liberty, get off from underneath Catholic tyranny. Of course, Catholicism for them was the principal source of these corruptions, but there were other corruptions that came in. So Eddie is, Eddie is, is uncannily capturing a main motif of the Puritans, and it's a motif that then plays a larger role in American religious history. I mean, the Baptists uh, they couldn't find baptism in the New Testament, so they were more pure than the Puritans who did baptize children. Uh, Mormons had their own version of this. Uh, Seventh-day Adventists had their version of this. On it goes. But as I say, it's a powerful instinct. It's actually built into Christianity. Uh, if I can just take a moment longer, there's the ethics and the views of divinity that Jesus teaches through the Gospels primarily, and then there's the institutional church, of which, of course, which he had not come into being during his lifetime, and how that sustained, departed from, added to everything that Jesus said. So she's very much attuned to that distinction between what Jesus said or would have wanted as undefiled religion and what happened 
afterwards. And then just one more thing on freeborn. That's a delicious term. Of course, it takes me back immediately to the Sons of Liberty in the, 17, in the 1770s, the men in Boston who politically mobilized as Sons of Liberty because liberty was a master word for the Puritans as well, liberty from tyranny. It didn't, of course, mean exactly the same thing to them that it meant to, to Eddie or to her contemporaries, but the tradition had emerged going way, way back that the New Englanders were singular advocates of individual freedom. And, um, you know, she's of the Civil War period or, or an adult of the Civil War period in which the Southern chivalry paternalistic ethos was seen as the utter opposite of the freeborn uh, concept that she's extolling. So, David, we classify our podcast, Seekers and Scholars, as living at the juncture of spiritual quest and scholarly inquiry. If we were somehow able to transport ourselves back in time to Puritan culture in an earlier period, even one that preceded uh, Mary Bacardi's time in rural New Hampshire in the early decades of the 19th century, how would you recommend that we find the voices of Puritan seekers and scholars to include in a Seekers and Scholars podcast, uh, 17th or 18th century style, if you will? Uh, it would be an extraordinary moment for us if we could go back to the 17th century and be present in a congregation when a young man or a young woman were a candidate for membership and were asked to describe their encounters with the risen Christ and their ups and downs of their spiritual history and they were often quite honest about those ups and downs and how there were seasons when Christ was absent or the Holy Spirit was absent and then other seasons of joy when the Holy Spirit was present. Yeah, in terms of modern scholars, a man who, who is himself an ordained minister, Congregationalist minister, Charles Hambrick Stowe, it's a hyphenated last name, wrote a marvelous book, a pioneering book published in the 70s, won a big prize, on the spiritual practices of the colonists. And it's beautifully balanced between uh, autobiographical accounts that he was able to uh, retrieve and prescriptive accounts by people like people such as ministers. And what he did was to recover, and I'm, I'm gonna, I emphasize this in the book that you've just mentioned, my new book, that the uh, Puritanism was a devotional movement. Mm. It's beating heart is is devotion, and it had such a strong sense that the Christian life was not random or unstructured or you know improvised or impulsive, but it developed around a rhythm. It had rhythms and it had structures and it had beginnings and middles and ends, and prayer, uh, self-reflection, self-examination, meditation, listening to sermons, reading, reading the right kinds of books, group counsel, spiritual testimonies. So Puritan conception of the spiritual life that I think Eddie would have recognized or acknowledged, even if she doesn't replicate it in every detail, is that, uh, first of all, there's a rich spirituality there, which some 21st century evangelicals are recovering. And then secondly, that it's a, it's a spirituality framed around both promise and blessing on the one hand, and challenge or risk on the other, the risk of slipping backwards, the risk of not continuing to grow in grace. The Puritans were very strongly 
aware that people start as infants, not infants in age, but infants in their spiritual histories and must go from what they call weak faith to robust faith. And it's a pathway filled with markers along the way and you need help along the way. And then I'll say just two more things here about Eddie, which is to anticipate maybe other things we should talk about. So everybody thinks the Puritans were grim, dressed in black, very foreboding, chastising, punishing. Uh, Well, actually, they didn't dress in black. I mean, the ministers wore a black gown, but they're the only people who wore black on Sundays. (laughs) They people dressed all kinds of different colors. So if you move from color to the way they feel about the presence of God or Christ in their lives, the word love leaps out at us. I'm just going to read a passage from, actually from my book, but it's quoting a famous Scots writer, Samuel Rutherford, and then a very equally famous Massachusetts writer, Thomas Shepard. Rutherford writes letters of spiritual counsel, and they involve his own spiritual counsel. So he evokes the Christ who showers those he loves with soft and sweet kisses. This is a quotation from Song of Songs, and washes away their tears. And the Massachusetts-based Thomas Shepard describes lying beside and rolling upon a Christ who in spirit is ravishing him. These are quite surprising. I mean, they're not, they're not acknowledged in the literature. This kind of expression that suggests just how strong a sense of the presence of the Holy Spirit these people had. And of course, the Holy Spirit or the Spirit is, as you know better than I, central, the foundational premise of Eddie's uh, own, uh, own theology. What, what you're talking about makes me think of a book by a, a scholar who, who himself was a Christian scientist, Stephen Gottschalk, the title of which is Rolling Away the Stone, Mary Baker Eddy's Challenge to Materialism. And he identifies Mary Baker Eddy's exposure to Calvinism or Puritanism in her upbringing as being that of the tradition of Jonathan Edwards and New Light Calvinism. He writes the the following quote, in later years, Eddie looked back with great fondness to those grand old divines who introduced her to the reality of religion during her youth. What they transmitted to her was the spirit of New England Puritanism at its best, the godliness that reflected the more universal dimensions of Christianity rather than the narrowly circumscribed doctrines of Calvinism in its terminal states. That's the end of the Gottschalk quote. I'd love to understand what Edwards' impact is on New England Puritanism. Yeah, there's no simple answer to that question, but I'll simplify. Uh, So, by and large, lay people in New England didn't read his metaphysical, what was, what was characterized as metaphysical works on the end of the world or original sin. What they knew about it was, uh, first of all, his uh, really remarkable work called uh, Treatise on Religious Affections, in which he argues that fundamentally religion, true religion, is based in the heart uh, and is spiritual. And then he wrote, of course, a narrative that sometimes described as a conversion narrative, a uh, spiritual testimony written, and he was in his late 20s, early 30s. It's not really a conversion narrative in the ordinary sense. It's a celebration, it's an appreciation of the sensate impact of the divine through the material world, through the natural world, 
through the constructed world on him. It's a reciprocal process. So instead of feeling contained or surrounded by the material world, he sees through the material world. He sees it as emblematic of a transcendent God. There's a spiritual sense in us that enables us to see beyond mere form to the realm of spirit. And it's been argued that, and I think plausibly, that uh, this theme of a spiritual sense, intuitive spiritual sense that God has planted in us or the capacity that God has planted in us, I mean, it can be obscured by greed or lust or sin or various kinds. Passes from Edwards to Emerson. And uh, there again, you get this deep, deep, deep sense of the material world as a kind of membrane. And you have this spiritual sense or sense of vision or uh, Emerson will use the metaphor of I to look beyond the material form. Edwards had a very, very high or strong sense of the divine presence now in the world. And then he had a technology or a, or a uh, uh, metaphysics for grasping how we, we ourselves can't come to see that. It's not mystical. You don't lose yourself. You don't, you don't sort of fly off into a vapor. But it, it can feel mystical-like in how it works. And, of course, Emerson accentuated that side in certain ways. So all the terrifying aspects of Edwards that are in school books, the sinners in the hands of an angry God, you know, everybody trembling and falling, screaming, oh, my goodness, I can't make it. God has condemned me. Uh, that's real. That, that is one side of Edwards. But no single phrase can capture all the sides of, of Jonathan Edwards. And she was responding, and others like her in the 19th century were responding to different sides of Edwards at different moments in time. I mean, the Unitarians hated Edwards because he was such a powerful defender of doctrines they were repudiating. It brings to mind a dissertation by Dr. Tom Johnson, and the title of which was Christian Science and the Puritan Tradition. And he really calls out this idea of spiritual sense as the, the critical part of Edwards's legacy for Mary Baker Eddy. And I'll, I'll just quote from his dissertation for a moment. He writes, quote, The notion of spiritual sense has been called Edwards's most influential contribution to Puritan thought and it placed a distinctive watermark on New England piety thereafter. It was only the most direct expression of the basic Puritan impulse, the effort to confront face-to-face -face the image of a blinding divinity without the intermediacy of ritual, of ceremony, of the mass, and the confessional. This effort found outward expression in Eddy's church in a variety of ways, services of notable simplicity, a holy spiritual observance of the sacraments, a denominational structure without clergy to mediate or monopolize the relationship between the individual and God. The attitudes behind these arrangements were typically even radically Protestant, and that she maintained the right of each individual to inspiration." Unquote. What Johnson says about uh, Eddie's and the church's practices under Eddie and after Eddie resonate with me in lots of ways. You know, I'll just give you a quick example that everybody knows, probably maybe doesn't know. The church in Plymouth, Massachusetts, you know, founded in 16... Well, they brought the church with them. They didn't have to found it because they were already church members in Leiden, uh, where they were refugees from England, the, the pilgrims. You know, it was led by a layman for uh, 15 years. Uh, they did just fine without an ordained minister. 
Going back to what I was just saying about lay people testifying, we have to go back to a time when the capacity of lay people to evoke their spiritual histories, not in some banal way, but in some strong way that made sense to others, but sense to themselves, that their life patches, their journeys, that, that this was a, let's call it a literacy or a fluency. This was, this was everywhere. This was widespread. And um, getting worship right was so immensely important to them. So just to linger on one aspect of that uh, passion for the right kind of worship, they didn't believe in set prayer. They wanted free-form prayer, prayer from the heart. They thought that uh, if you had set prayers, you lapsed over into what they called formalism, which was a negative word, that God wouldn't really be listening to you because the Holy Spirit was not at work. So we have to think of lay people and ministers both uh, developing a capacity to pray freely and in the church services praying freely, and prayer was a big part of the church service. And there's a famous anecdote about Thomas Hooker, who was a minister in Hartford, Connecticut, a very, very important minister. He's preaching, and then all of a sudden he falls silent, and he's standing there in the pulpit, and time goes by, and then he begins to preach again. And later on, it was realized that he was waiting for the Spirit to fill him up anew, you know, come, come back to him. And it's not that he had forgotten his sermon. <laughs> he, was being, he was being faithful to the principle that the spoken word by a clergyman has to be accompanied by the Spirit. So this simplicity of the worship service is so specific to this Puritan movement and its legacies and you know, unadorned churches and so forth and so on. A lot of that was tweaked in the 19th century in various ways. Singing, of course, was important. Is singing important in, in, in Christian science? Yes, uh, it is. I, we've done a couple of episodes, more than a couple, on hymnody and the Christian science church. And it, it occurred to us as we sort of broke down the percentage of time in each service that included music that, you know, it's high. It, I'm interested in what you were talking about, uh, the, the, the minister, Thomas Hooker, who has this moment where he, he pauses and waits for the Spirit to, uh, to inspire and to direct his words. In Christian science, there are two weekly services. There is a, a Sunday service, which does have a sort of more established formal structure to it. And then there's a Wednesday evening testimony service, where there is much more room given to the, the immediacy of inspiration. And typically people gather, they listen to some readings from the Bible and from uh, Mary Baker's work, Science and Health with Key to the Scriptures. And then it's really open for people to share testimony. So I'm wondering if there's a precedent for that kind of spiritual exercise in Puritan spirituality. I'm gonna go back to something I was saying a little while ago about Puritanism and spirituality. So from their point of view, the point of view of the ministers and the lay people, there were specific practices, let's, let's call them methods to use. And these methods had boundaries. And so you, you, you were always aware that you might bump up against one of these boundaries. For example, one boundary, which is a sad boundary, would be if you lost any sense of hope. And that was, that was called melancholy or or worth or despair. And so you had to go through other practices to recover from that, 
to move beyond that past. You know, in uh, Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan's Pilgrim begins in the slough of despond. He's in this swamp, and he can't get out of it. And that's a metaphor or analogy for for despair or a sense of hopelessness. So the whole series of spiritual exercises are framed to lift you out of that, number one, by reminding you of the gospel promise of free grace that uh, really is not dependent on you at all. It's, it's free grace, and a helping hand is being extended to you uh, by Christ. Again, not a motif that people often associate with Puritanism, but very, very strong in Thomas Shepard's preaching uh, that Christ wants you to be saved and is reaching out his hand and calling to you and come to me and so forth. All these are based on scriptural passages, of course. But I, let me just turn the coin over and say that, of course, the Puritan movement and many of its heirs are marked by a strong sense of sin, sinfulness, and uh, forget the term original sin. It's just that we're, by nature, we are sinners. So that there are two ultimate tests of devotion. One is, can you say honestly, I am a sinner? And then can you say with a heartfelt feeling, I know that Christ loves me and wants me to be saved, and I am accepting that offer. And then there's the emotion of joy. The first emotion of accepting one's sinfulness is, of course, can be, gosh, it's all over for me because I'm such a sinner, so all kinds of ways to guard against that. And I know that Eddie was aware of spiritual dangers, uh, spiritual risks, weaknesses in people. Maybe you, maybe you can help me out here. I know she rejected original sin, I'm sure. She, she did, but she takes the question of sin very seriously. So from her point of view, it is the profound illusion of being sinful that inhabits the world and requires uh, consecrated spiritual effort to liberate oneself from. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. But one can do it with a certain measure of confidence because the ultimate truth is that one is not sinful. It's interesting, very, very interesting, very appealing, actually, to you know, remind me that uh, hers was a more challenging view. And that's, of course, completely in line with the Puritan point of view. Thank you for listening to part one of our conversation with Dr. David Hall on the subject of Mary Baker Eddy and the Puritans. Dr. Hall is the author of the recently published The Puritans, A Transatlantic History, issued by Princeton University Press in 2019. In part two, Dr. Hall and I will look at other issues and topics relevant to Puritanism and Mary Baker Eddy, including predestination, the theological belief that certain people are destined for eternal salvation and others are not as well as Eddie's familial connection to a storied chapter in Puritan history with the Scottish Covenanteers. I'm Jonathan Eder. Thank you for listening to Seekers and Scholars. This podcast is produced by the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Copyright 2020.